Hello, and welcome to Anything But Traditional. I'm your host, Tamar ben and I'm so happy that you are here today. This episode is extra special to me because I recorded it with my mother, my role model, my superwoman. My mom had, as she says, a pretty traditional, normal life. Um, a few things happened, but they shaped her until one of them losing my father took place and it was do or die, right? She had to figure out how to be a single mother, how to raise three kids aged three and a half, eight, and ten. It wasn't easy, but my mom overcame it. My mom married an incredible man and today they have six kids and all of us are religious, living lives that would be respectable in our parents' eyes, living meaningful lives where we contribute to society. I'm very proud of my family for how far we've come. And I think that in this episode, you really hear it. You really hear the resilience, what we've been through, what my mom has been through. So listen up, listen in, get to know me a bit more, get to know my mom a bit more. I've been waiting to do this episode for well over (laughs) a few years, so I can't wait for you to listen. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Anything But Traditional. Today, we have a very special guest as it's my mother, who I've been trying to get on Instagram, podcast, anything to share her voice for years. My mom is my biggest inspiration. Um, she has gone through a lot in her life, and I think it's a very important time to hear her voice as many women right now are single mothers, have become single mothers permanently are currently single mothers temporarily and the mirrors of their husbands that should come home from war. Um, my mom was a single mom for four and a half years after my dad passed away at the young age of 37. My mom was 40. She became a single mom. She had to raise me, which I was not an easy kid at all. And she also had to raise my siblings. So without further ado, I'm going to have my mom come on and, uh, yeah, we're going to have a conversation. So. Ma, um, I wanted you to tell everybody, where did you grow up? What was childhood like for you? And what are some things that you remember about your childhood? Okay, well, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, but my family moved to Union, New Jersey at the end of second grade. Um, and we had a very typical suburban family life. Um My parents put me in public school to start with, and we were very active in our synagogue, which was a conservative synagogue, which uh, was very traditional. My father's family, uh, my father was the only one in his family born in America. Uh, The rest of them came from Europe. He was born right after his mother joined his father with his siblings in America. Share that story a little bit, because that's a crazy story. How many years (laughs) were they separated for? Okay, so my grandfather came over without his wife and three children. And uh, 
and sent for them. They came five years later. Um, I actually was very close to my grandmother and I feel like she was a very strong influence on me. She was very European. She had a great sense of humor. She really had a tough life. She came to America with three children by herself on a boat in steerage. She used to tell me all these stories about her life in her shtetl and how she came to America and how proud she was of being an American. And, um, and she was a very strong-willed woman who never gave up on her Yiddish kite. Um, I know you've heard this story. She always used to tell the story about how um, when she came to America and uh, my grandfather had already been in America and became a little bit Americanized. And the first Shabbos, he said, let's go visit the cousins who actually paid for her to come. And so they started walking and he took her to the subway station and she had a fit. And she said, on Shabbos, you're taking me to a train. I'm going back to the shtetl. I'm not staying here if this is what Shabbos is going to be like. And so she won that argument and uh, she was very strong-willed. But of course, that generation became very, her children became very Americanized. My father became very Americanized. Um, you know, they, they started him in a cheder on the Lower East Side. And, you know, uh, after the Rebbe gave him a whack for not behaving, they took him out and put him in public school. And, uh, you know, they were, he, my father, you know, was very proud to be an American. So that's the family I grew up in. So I know that you went to public school until eighth grade. Mm-hmm. And then what happened before eighth grade? Um, I had a very typical suburban upbringing. My parents were very involved in the synagogue. Um, they sent me to Camp Ramah, which was a tremendous influence on myself and my brothers and the family. And, uh, you know, my parents always kept a kosher home at least in the house, kosher. And we went to shul every Shabbat. And, uh, you know, all the holidays, my parents were, you know, very, very traditional, but not necessarily observant. But as time went on, things evolved. And then my younger brother, who's seven years younger than me, my mother put him in the nursery school at our synagogue was they had started a Solomon Schechter school. And so she put him in the nursery and fell in love with the Schechter school and all the Yiddishkeit he was learning and that decided that I needed to go. So she took me out of public school and put me into Schechter. Kicking and screaming, I really didn't want to go because I was fine with public school, but it really did change my life in a lot of ways. So uh, I give my parents credit for that. And like, how did it change your life? What was the biggest part of that change? I think I was always gradually growing in my Yiddishkeit. I always felt very connected. Um, even when I was up in public school and a, a very big part of my social life and my friends in Hebrew school, and I had some very influential teachers in Hebrew school and junior congregation. And so little by little, and then camp, uh, learning to daven, I was, you know, taking on more and more mitzvot. I felt my parents were hypocritical by being kosher only in the house and out of the house. So I stopped eating non-kosher out of the house. Uh, you know, it all evolved. When did you become Shomer Shabbos? Didn't you become Shomer Shabbos in high school? Um, 
well, when I when I switched to Schechter in eighth grade, uh, that's pretty much, uh, you know, I, I had some great friends who had a strong influence on me. And I got involved with United Synagogue Youth, USY. I was very involved. And uh, I remember at some point I had kept like just just by chance because I was either with friends or at a USY convention, I had kept like four Shabbatot in a row just because I, you know, I was not home. I was out and I was like, well, this is okay. I can do this. And so I decided to take that on. I was like, I can do this. And I, you know, became more and more meaningful to me. And so I think that that's kind of how it evolved. Um, You know, I always felt like my family was very traditional and supportive. So it was just more of the details because we always had Shabbat in my house. We always had Shabbat Friday night, even like when my older brother wanted to go out on a Friday night to meet friends, it was very understood that you had Shabbat dinner at home and you didn't go out. And we always went to shul Shabbos morning. If we wanted to go shopping Saturday afternoon, that was a different story, but you know, we always had Shabbat. So, you know, so then it was really a gradual kind of taking on more of the details of the mitzvot. But I always, I always felt the holidays and Shabbat in my family. Even when I was in public school and it was the Chagim, my father would say to me, well, you know, if you come to shul with me, for whatever it was, Sukkot or Simchas Torah, if you come to shul with me in the morning, then you don't have to go back to school in the afternoon. You can have the whole day off. So I did, I opted for that, sure. But uh, (laughs) that was kind of the way I was brought up. It was, you know, very supportive. And when I told my parents that I wanted to keep Shabbat, they were very supportive. They never gave me a hard time. They were very proud of that, really. Even when you walked two miles to shul there and back, right? That's right. It was two miles. And um, and my father would often walk with me just because he didn't want me to be alone and walk by myself. So, um, you know, but it was, a, it was a long walk. And in those days, there was no Eruv. So sometimes I walked in my dress shoes. Sometimes I left the shoes at shul. But uh, it was a long walk. Wow. <laughs> and sometimes cold. So I did not realize that he walked with you. That's so nice. Yeah, he often did. Like sometimes I would say, you don't have to. I like walking by myself. And he'd be like, no, no. He would always, he would want to walk with me. Wow. So, yeah. So did you ever have any thoughts about like your life after college? Um, I don't know. I don't know how much you think about that. I mean, look, I always wanted to be married and raise a Jewish family. Like that was important to me. I didn't really think that much about my career. Um, Sometimes that stressed me out. Like I would complain to my mother, I don't know what I want to do with my life. So no, I, I really didn't have a definite goals or career path. Um, But college really formed you, right? Like, I feel like you went through a lot of formative stuff in college. Um, I don't know so much in college, maybe even after college. But like your um, year in Israel? My year in Israel was very formative. Um, you went your junior year? My junior year. Um, you know, I, my first trip to Israel was on a USY trip 
in high school. It was the first, that was the first time I was on an airplane. And that really made a very strong impression on me. That was an amazing experience. Um, it was very uh, emotional and I felt very connected in Israel. I had some really uh, meaningful experiences. And so I went for my junior year and my junior year also was very, you know, I, I felt very connected, thought about making Aliyah, absolutely loved being in Israel, but it was very hard back then because I went the whole year without seeing my parents, speaking to them once a week or every few weeks by phone from like the post office, you know, we didn't have cell phones. I wrote letters and sometimes we would make little cassette tapes and send them if somebody was going to America so I could actually talk to my parents. But we, um, you know, had very little contact. So I think that that was really the only reason why I really was not able to say, oh, I'm making Aliyah. I had some friends that did, but for me, it was like I could never be so far away from my family like that. So, um, yeah. And then you came back and you also graduated college and you still didn't know what you wanted to do. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, my father was always pushing me to go to law school, which I kind of resisted. Like even in college? Yeah. So I, I want to take a step back because an another thing that was actually very formative, I think, for me was um, about a month before my bat mitzvah, um, we had an aunt and uncle who we were very close to that lived in Union. We moved to Union because my aunt and uncle lived in Union. And my uncle um, owned a uh, liquor store in Newark. And this was uh, 1973, uh, not a good time in Newark. So it was actually Labor Day. We had gone to a bar mitzvah a family bar mitzvah and my uncle refused to go because he had to open up his liquor store and he was murdered in a robbery. Somebody came into his liquor store and shot him. And my, my aunt had come with us and we dropped her off at home. We came back to our house and my aunt, I, I picked up the phone and my aunt was screaming that they had killed my uncle. And so um, my family really took my aunt in. I mean, she lived in Union. She was at our dinner table every night. And um, my aunt, you know, my aunt came from Europe and was an immigrant. She really did not have an education. She, I think, went to school to like sixth grade. And, um, and she didn't, and my aunt was truly a balabusta. She cooked, she baked, she sewed, she did everything. She was very much a part of our lives. And um, it was very traumatic. And um, my father basically taught her the real estate business and she went into real estate. She became successful. But I think my father saw in that, that as much as he wanted for me to have a family life and have a Jewish home, he also saw how important it was to have your own resources, and to be able to support yourself. And my father would say that to me all the time. And that's why he wanted me to go to law school. He'd say, you don't have to practice law. You could be a mom, but you should always know that you can 
have a career and that you can take care of yourself because God forbid you don't know what will be in life. And um, that was a very strong lesson for me. You know, he really stressed how important it is for a woman to be able to be independent. Um, you know, he saw how my aunt couldn't function because my uncle had done so much that she did not know about in terms of finances and bills and whatever. And my father was like, you have to be able to know how to manage on your own because you never know. And who knew that that was going to be me some 30 years, 20 years later or whatever. But um, it was a lesson. Well, it's always a lesson that I always tell other people also because, you know, I feel like I definitely learned that lesson from you of like, even if you don't work in it, you have to be educated and know that you can work and know that you can make a living. Um, that's something I definitely feel like you taught us growing up. So you did a good job at that. Ma. <laughs> well, well, you know, you never know. I mean, I think I, you know, from a young age, I learned that you just don't know what life is going to bring you and you have to be prepared and be flexible. And also, I think I learned a lot from the way my family took care of my aunt because, um, you know, that's so important when someone suffers a trauma like that. And here, look, in Israel, we have all these new young widows and, um, you know, Israeli society is, is wonderful that way. Yeah. But, you know, in America, if my aunt didn't have my parents, I don't know what she would have done. I mean, you know, they really took care of her. Well, one of the things that really struck me, actually, after October 7th, is that we got in touch with um, Ellie Beer from United Hacilla, um, seeing if any of the children needed to be adopted. And we asked about it, and he said every single child was taken care of by family members. And that was really moving. And I think that that's yeah. just a testament to Israeli society. Um, one of the other things that you told me a lot growing up that you felt like your life was pretty picture perfect until daddy passed away. But it's interesting that you're saying that because you just said that you learned very early on that like a lot of things in life happen that you don't expect and that you just don't know what life brings at you. So I feel like what do you mean that your life was picture perfect if you learned at such an early age that things go wrong and things well, happen. Okay. So my aunt's trauma, um, it was very traumatic for her, but as a kid for me, um, you know, after getting over the initial trauma, all it meant was that I had my aunt in my life more and, um, came my sweet 16, she did all the cooking for my party. She, my bat mitzvah, she made my gown for me. She like, she was always there, part of like an extra person in the family. Um, it enhanced our family, I guess, in some, in many ways. And, you know, I learned a lot of positive lessons for it, from it. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't have a negative impact on me. I mean, look, she was, clearly traumatized. It was very difficult for her. But, you know, as a kid growing up, um, to me, it just meant that she was more involved in our family.
And because she was a loving, giving person, that was not a negative thing. I never resented her being at my house all the time or, you know, because she, she was the best. She was. Yeah, she was. I remember person. her. And she really, she really became like best friends with my mom. You know, they were so close. Well, I remember her very well. Like I, you know, I always think about how she taught me how to say no, thank you. Um, and not just get upset. <laughs> That was like one of the like lessons I learned from her. Say no, thank you. She was a very so. special person, and and she ended up remarrying. I think that was another thing that I saw was that she rebuilt her life. She remarried, um, and had you know a number of years with her new husband, who was actually her. It was her daughter's father-in-law that she ended up marrying. He lost his wife to cancer. And uh, shared the grandchildren and they built a life together. And so she modeled something positive for me. I saw how my family and how my aunt dealt with it and grew from it and, you know, managed to salvage their lives despite, despite that. And I think that's important because, you know, when you, see all this trauma around us, you know, we realize we, you know, we have to rebuild. We have to learn how to never forget, but to move on and uh, create a new life for ourselves. And so I learned that lesson from an early age. And I, I guess that that helped me ultimately with my own situation. So. Great. Wow. So, okay. So, after college, you became a lawyer, um, and you met yes. Daddy, who was three years yes, younger than I you. While he was in law school, and and he was it still in college. Yes. And then you, he graduated college, mm-hmm. and you guys got married, mm-hmm. and you w- waited five years to have kids. Four years. Four years to have kids. <laughs> And then Adina came into the picture. Right. We waited because daddy was a student and he was a student for a long time because he started graduating. Well, I always say that daddy basically was a student like until four years before he died or something. Yes. It's crazy. Yes. <laughs> yes. But you know what? He loved being a student and he would say that all the time. I love, I love being a student. <laughs> it was a great life. He loved learning. He loved what he was doing. Well, I always say that it was very, like, I feel like one of the biggest challenges for you, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like one of the biggest challenges for you in those four and a half years that you were a single mom was figuring out how to navigate me. Uh, I think just, <laughs> that was part of it. I mean, you were, you were challenging. I think <laughs> it was also just trying to maintain a normal healthy lifestyle that, you know, I worked very hard so that we would have a normal home life that, um, you know, you didn't feel like things were so different. But like looking back on it, like it was very crazy what we went through. Yeah, it's hard. Look, I mean, it's a hard thing. I mean, you know, I look at what's happening here in this country. It's just, it's, it's not easy. Um, but I always, always felt 
very, very blessed to have the family support that I had. I mean, my parents, you know, when daddy was in the hospital, not even, you know, he was dying. And my father was like, we're moving to Cherry Hill. I was like, wait, wait, <laughs> but he was ready to, you know, they were ready to be there for us. Well, also, I think that daddy had a unique experience because he knew he was going to die. Like it wasn't like a, when he got his diagnosis, he was like, that was it. Yes. But I don't, I don't think he thought it was going to happen so soon. Great. It was very fast. So I think that, I think that like both, and maybe even more so more on my side, I really was preparing for like a long haul of medical treatment and that, you know, he would be sick for a while, he would be home and he would be able to work a little from home. Instead, he just passed away in a few weeks. I always feel that it's weird when I say that I was eight years old when my dad died because yes, I was eight, um, my birthday was that Sunday, and he died that Thursday. But, like, the last time I spent any time with him was when I was seven. Like, I I, I didn't, like, it wasn't like, uh, oh, like, you spent time with him when you were older, whatever. Like, he, basically from the time that he told us he had cancer, like, that was kind of the last conversation I had with him. Yeah, yeah. And I remember that very, very well. So we're talking a lot about this, but let's go back a little bit because um, people don't know like what happened. So can you tell the story a little bit of what happened in terms of daddy getting sick? Like, did he have any symptoms beforehand? Was he like, what happened? Well, you know, he ultimately died of stomach cancer. Um, It's uh, I don't know, a lot of people don't know a lot about stomach cancer, but it's similar to pancreatic cancer in that there are no symptoms until it metastasizes. So we don't know how long this cancer was growing inside of him, uh, but he did not have symptoms and he was a strong, healthy guy. And we were skiing uh, Christmas weekend. We went skiing. He was skiing too? Uh, Oh, of course. Oh, I did not realize that. Of course. Oh, we all, <laughs> yeah, and he was schlepping and he was fine. And in fact, I don't know if you even realize this, but we were at Camelback and you and Adina went home, I think with the Gleaners, you went back to my parents' house and we stayed an extra day, me and daddy and Joe. Well, we didn't even bring Joe into the picture. So let's just go back. For a second, to bring Joe into the picture. Because I also think, I mean, are you willing to talk about your miscarriages? Only that, I mean, there's nothing to talk about. I had a few miscarriages. Between me and Joe, didn't you have like two or three 12-week miscarriages? I had two 12-week miscarriages. And then Joe was supposed to be a twin? Correct. Which I think is hysterical because he married a twin. (laughs) I'm like... They all, they both, I'm like, when, when are your twins coming, guys? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Joe was supposed to be a twin. And yeah. I mean, like, I feel it, like it's funny because I feel like with everything that else that happened, right, with daddy, which we're going to get back to, but um, 
I feel like the that part of your life of having those miscarriages is kind of like glossed over well, and not really You know, when you get to my age <laughs> these things, when you look back it's kind of like a little blip along the road. <laughs> At the time when you're going through it, it's traumatic. There's no question. It's sad, it's traumatic, but then you know, you move on to the next stage and you you know, put it in perspective and you just move on. And I'm thankful that I did ultimately have Joe. And Joe was three and a half when daddy passed yes. away. Yes. Which is so crazy. Like you see these kids that are like three and a half and you're like, you're literally like still a baby. Yes. But in many ways, I think Joe suffered the least out of all of us because he was so young that it didn't affect him the way it affected you and Adina and me and everybody else. Well, I think, I also think as the, you know, as we got older, right, meaning like it affected Joe the like least, it affected me like second least, you you know, Adina, Adina was really like 10 years old. She was 10 and a half when daddy died. She was really affected. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, you are obviously affected the most. You know what it's, Everybody, everybody feels it at different times in different ways. And sometimes, like, I think also, you know, sometimes you don't necessarily feel it the same way when you're a child as you do later on in life when you can reflect and understand it in a different way. Um, Well, what's interesting to me now, and, and, you know, it it started when we were living in Yermat Shiloh um, six and a half years ago, but something that you know as the years go on and my cousins are 37 and my friends are 37 and I just like look at what a 37 year old is doing in their life and you're like you don't expect any one of your healthy 37 year old friends to get stomach cancer and die like it's not like a a thing that you think is ever gonna happen and which is why like when you say did daddy have symptoms he didn't have symptoms and it was so unexpected so when we came home from skiing you know he had a fever and i guess he thought he had like a little flu or something and um you know so he stayed home he was sitting on the couch it snowed did he think that it was from no he just thought it was like a flu like from but i'm thinking yeah, like he thought it was a flu from skiing. From, you know, from winter. You know, and then, I mean, it yeah. snowed and he insisted on going out and shoveling. And I was like, Jeff, you're sick. No, no. It's like, you know, that's the way it was. He was. But then what happened was um, he wasn't getting better. Like the week continued and he kept and we were supposed to go away the following weekend, New, New Year's weekend. You were? We went up to the Catskills with Nanny and Poppy. Who was watching us? You came with us. We were all going for, what were we going for? I think it was for Poppy's birthday or something. I don't remember. Was it for I don't remember. Grandma and Grandpa's anniversary no, on I the January 1st? Nanny and Poppy we were going with. And, and maybe it was, I don't remember. All I remember is that daddy did not come because he was really not feeling well. And he was thinking maybe he would drive up Saturday night or Sunday if his fever broke because he was still feverish and he just didn't feel well. 
Well, he wasn't just feverish. He had like 104. Uh, I don't remember. How do you? That's what you told me back in the day. I don't remember. But he was sick, <laughs> and he didn't feel good. Oh, we went out. No, no, it was the following weekend after New Year's. New Year's Eve, we went out. New Year's Eve, uh, we went to a party, and he didn't want to stay till midnight because he didn't feel well. So he was sick. But um, after that weekend, he didn't come up. He didn't join us. I came home, and he called a friend of his from med school who was an internist at Penn. And he said, look, I still have this fever. I don't know what's going on. And the guy said, why don't you come in? I'll take a look at you. Um, You know, when you're a doctor, you never really like pay attention. You never go to the doctor. But he went to see his friend and his friend's like, oh, maybe I think you should, uh, you know, have a chest X-ray. They did chest X-ray. They saw something pushing up on his chest from the stomach. They said, let's do a CAT scan. And they saw this huge cancer growing on his liver. And, um, and it was his friend who had to tell him. It was really very devastating. Felt very bad for his friend because it was not an easy thing. But um, it was just very unexpected. In fact, on our way to seeing, to going to the hospital, I almost didn't even go with him. And I was like, oh, I'll go with you, you know, because he was going in like, oh, I'm going to go see. I went with him. And, and then uh, on the way in, he's like, oh, I probably have an ulcer. I don't want to deal with an ulcer. It's so annoying. Like not, not a clue that this is what it was going to be. So it was really shock and it was really devastating. And he knew. Was that on Friday? Because I remember coming home on Friday and you telling us, or did you guys know for a few days? Um. No, because he stayed in the hospital for a few days. Oh, he did? Yes, he was in the hospital. I think they put him in a room, and they, I think they were doing some testing, and then they sent him home on Friday morning. Got it. And then he told us. Yeah. Yeah. Which was a really I, – like, I remember the conversation so well, and it's kind of – sad because I feel like that's the one conversation that I really remember having with daddy like I don't remember a lot of conversations before that I remember like a little bit but the one conversation I remember like every word of that conversation where he was like I'm gonna be home more but eventually I'm gonna die and he wasn't hiding it no because he knew I mean I think he wanted to prepare you he also tried to make it like you know, that to make the best out of the time that he had. Um, But, you know, I really kind of in my heart believe that, you know, he was when he really realized how sick he was, he really didn't want to come home and be sick in the house. And the night before he died, the day before he died, they were planning on sending him home with a hospital bed and medication and that he was going to be home. And, um, and he kept saying to me, no, don't bring the kids into the, we, I, br- I think I brought you to the hospital once or twice, but he really didn't want that. He didn't want you guys to see him like that. Well, you brought me to the hospital on that third. Like, I remember that Thursday, like 
it was yesterday. I mean, you brought me to the hospital. Yeah. You called me at school. Like, you called me in from school. We went with Aaron Krupnik, um, the rabbi of the conservative shul. Um, and he brought us to the hospital. And Adina went in. I could, I, like, went in very briefly. I looked at my dad. I'm like, you look horrible. And I ran out. <laughs> I couldn't think about him. I was very angry at myself for years that I couldn't think about him. I ran out. He just like had IVs all over him. It was very scary. Um and then yeah. Then I went home and I played Moncala. It was a very hard decision for me as a parent um to bring you guys to the hospital because I you know I knew he was gonna die. At that point we knew that it was gonna happen. And I felt that I had to give you the opportunity to say goodbye, whether you, you know, were able to handle it or not. Like, I felt like if I didn't give you the opportunity, you would be angry with me later on. So I wanted you to at least have the opportunity to say goodbye. And then I was angry with myself. <laughs> Look, I, you know, it was a hard, it was, who knows? It was, yeah, it, it was a sure. hard call to make. Um, but that's and then you also have the story of when you came home from the hospital that day mm -hmm. and you spoke to joe well joe i did not bring to the hospital you know joe really did not know what was going on but it was a lot of chaos because i was running back and forth to the hospital you know he was having babysitters and the house was kind of turned upside down and uh, and I came home and and Joe sat on my lap. He said, I don't want you to go to the hospital anymore. And I said, I'm not going to go anymore. It's done. It was very sad. So I remember Thursday night, we went to a talent show, the school talent yeah, show. Daddy was we very came happy home. that he missed it. <laughs> <laughs> I told him, I told him that it was the school talent show. And he's like, oh, I hate that thing. I'm so glad I'm not going. He still had a sense of humor, so. <laughs> so funny. He was, t but he wasn't talking that Thursday. Yeah, he was. He yeah. was? Yeah. It was the next, oh, uh, in I... the middle of the night is when he, uh, was when they brought him up to the ICU. Yeah. Maybe he was talking on Wednesday? No, Thursday. Oh, you're right. But Wednesday. He... I'm sorry. You're right. Because he died on Thursday. Yeah, because he right. died. Literally, we were at the talent Correct. show. And I came in, and I remember coming in and being like, why is everyone sitting at my dining room table that I've ever seen ever in my life? Like, everyone was there. Like, the whole family no, was there. I don't remember that. And you took me and Adina to her room, and we had a conversation. I think, I think you remember more than I do. I think that, uh, you know, I guess in a protective way, you know, you forget a lot of things, or you just kind of put things away in your memory that you don't want to access because if you do, it just makes you sad. So yeah. I, you know, um, so I remember a lot of that day. And then I also remember Saturday morning, you know, daddy was buried on, um, Sunday and that Saturday morning I woke up, um, and I came downstairs and you were sitting on the couch and like, 
I always say that that was the only time that I ever really remember you like looking sad, being sad, crying. Like, I don't really remember you crying or being sad otherwise. Like, that was like it. Just that one day. Mm-hmm. That I'll tell you why, Tamar. Because I worked very hard. I really have a memory of driving in the car, crying, and then... I was going to pick you, pick you guys up from wherever. And this was not a one-time thing. This happened periodically. I would be crying and then I would park the car and pull myself together and say, I got to get my kids because I didn't want you to see that. I didn't want. And I also remember like later, right? Like as we were growing up, you also made sure they have us have like a schedule, right? Like I felt very, that our afternoons weren't, you know, after we came home from school. Um, sometimes we just watched TV. That was, you know, that was a little bit, like, later. Um, but a lot of the days, like, I felt you had planned it out. And you had been like, okay, today we're going to go to the pool. We always had a pool day mm-hmm. at the JCC in the indoor pool. And then we would get dinner after that. Um, yeah, like, I remember that very well of yeah. you. Well, that's having part like of being structure. a single parent and having to be very, you want the routine, you want organized because it's not easy to be a single parent and you've got to have a plan and you, you know, so yeah. Right. And then I was lucky enough that Nana was able to help me later, you know. Well, that was also a crazy story because, right, so you were living as a single mom mm-hmm. From January until September. And then in September, your father had his second heart attack? No. So my parents decided to move to Cherry Hill. And actually, they were they were in our house a lot during that time. And uh, my, they, found, they found a home around the corner from us. And were in the process of buying it and selling their house. So they had a lot going on. And it wasn't even just their house. It was their house of like 30, 40 years that they were selling. Yes, yes. The house that I grew up in. Yes. Um, So that was a big deal that they were selling that house, packing that house, moving to a new house around the corner from us. It was a very big endeavor. And my father had had heart disease for many, many years. He had a heart attack when I was in college. That was his first heart attack. He had bypass surgery. So anyway, he was struggling and my brothers and I saw him struggling to keep up. He was out of breath or whatever. And then the doctors said that he needed to go for a bypass surgery and, um, and he did not survive that surgery. So that was in September, just before 9-11. But, and he also wasn't that old when he died. No. He was... Like 71? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, which really, at at the time, I didn't think was so young. But now I realize, wow, that's really young. Um, but, But he had heart disease for so many years. And, you know, had had heart attacks and heart surgery. So, um wasn't as much, I guess, of a surprise because he had always struggled with that. And and he had the diabetes. 
He died on um, September 7th, right? Yes. Okay, so this was September 7th, 2001. Correct. And his funeral was September 8th, 9th? I guess it was that Sunday. It was a Sunday. It was the 9th. And then 9-11 was Tuesday. And we were sitting Shiva. Yeah. Yeah, which was always so it's always so crazy because the whole Shiva house basically turned into a TV party of watching 11. Yeah. 9/11, which was which really was... weird for me because my father was such a New Yorker and it was like if he could only see what was going on, I was it was like devastating. Um yeah. really devastating. So it was a very tough year 2001 for us. 2001. Yeah. It's but Crazy. I don't know if you remember this, but after 9-11, I remember looking through the newspapers and reading about all these families that lost loved ones. And I would say to you, look, we're not the only ones that lost a parent, not the only ones that lost someone. So, um, no, I remember really um, trying to because to me, that was important that we weren't alone in our pain and that there were other people who were had lost family members in such a traumatic way. And um, I think it gives you perspective. And I think, you know, for these widows here in Israel now from from the war in Gaza, you know, they're going to have to lean on each other and know that they're not alone. And, um, you know, it's it's so unfortunate. But um, I think before 9-11, I felt really very, like, alone, like, this doesn't happen, you know, that why me? But then when, when 9-11 happened, gave me a little bit of a perspective that, you know, people, families suffer, families lose uh, family members, parents in horrible ways. And we have to find a way to honor them and remember them and move on with our lives in a way that they would want us to. And you really were able to move on with your life and you got married after four and a half years of being a single mom and you got married to an awesome stepdad of mine. And we're now, now we're married 18 and a half years. But that was also really crazy, like merging your families and getting back on the right foot. We weren't, you know. It was not easy. It was not easy. What do you think was the hardest part? Besides for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was, I think the hardest, I mean, logistics were very hard. I think just the logistics of selling two houses and moving, um, and uh, it was a lot, a lot to do. But then when it came time for us to make Aliyah, I said to Ilya, you know, after after combining our houses and moving both families into West Orange, making Aliyah is easy. It's just... <laughs> well, it's interesting because I feel like, you know, when you guys, right, you guys were married a while, and it was not... You know, it wasn't a, I never thought you were going to make Aliyah. I think both Ilya and I had very similar experiences of loving Israel and 
you know, always toying with the idea of Aliyah, but it didn't really fit with our lives. Um, you know, whether it was because of our parents or because of our kids or because of our work or whatever it was, you know, it's finding the time, the right time. I mean, daddy and I talked about it a number of times. Um, I always say that I feel like if daddy was alive, we would have made Aliyah so much quicker. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. I mean, we definitely talked about it. I think that he definitely was hoping to spend more time in Israel and uh, spent some time doing some work here. He was definitely making contacts here. So um, yeah, we definitely talked about it, but um, you know, you have to, for anybody to make Aliyah, the, it has to be the right combination of timing, family situation, work situation, whatever it is. For it's sure. Not a, it's, not an, it's not an easy thing to do. And um, everybody has to do it in their own way, in their own time. And if they're able to. Not do you only... feel like you made Aliyah in the right time for you? Oh, yeah, for sure. Definitely. I'm glad that I'm here now. I'm glad that I'm here for you. I, um, I, always, I always had a love for Israel. I always had a very strong connection. And I always felt... As though I always felt that as Jews, we belonged in Israel. And like I said, I was very influenced by my grandmother. Um, but one of the things that I, I always um, felt was, you know, my grandma, we had a picture of my grandmother's family from the shtetl. My grandmother had three other siblings. And, uh, you know, they lived... Uh, in the shtetl in Czechoslovakia, um, and uh, my my grandmother came to America around the same time. This is before World War II. She came around the same time that her brother came to Bnei Brak, and um, she had a sister and brother who stayed in Europe. Her sister ended up in Auschwitz and survived, and her brother and his entire family was destroyed. And I always felt that that was really an amazing picture of the Jews of that generation. One came to America, one went to Israel, one survived Auschwitz, and one did not survive. And, um, and I always felt like it was just by chance that we ended up in America. Like, why did my, my grandmother come to America and not go with her brother to Israel? And I always felt like we all belong in Israel. Like we all belong there. And coming to America was just kind of a circuitous way to ultimately get there. And my aunt, who survived Auschwitz, she came to America and then later in life came to B'nai Brak and died oh, wow. here. And um, I didn't know that. Yes. And I was oh. very close with her, too, because she was in Israel. She was living in B'nai Brak when I was at Hebrew U for the year. And I used to come and stay with her. Um, she was married or not married? Well, she came to Israel with her second husband. She never had children. That's why we were very close to her. She survived Auschwitz. She never had her own children. My father and his siblings were very close to her because those were the closest children she had. Um, and um, 
I just always felt this sense that, you know, the Jews were dispersed all over the world, but we ultimately needed to be in Israel. And what happened in Europe could happen in America, and we see what's happening now. And the only place for us is here. So I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad you are here too. Yes. And I always used to say to daddy, said this very often, said, if we don't go to Israel, it's going to take our kids to drag us there. And they did. I thought that very often because it was so hard for us to pick up our lives and we were attached to our families and our kids. And I always said to daddy, our kids are going to drag us there because if our kids go to Israel, we will follow them. Yeah, but how did you know that we were, meaning a lot of kids did not end up in Israel. And I think it's unique that all three of your kids ended up in Israel. I don't know. Maybe I just planted the seeds because it was so important to me. I mean, look, when I named you, and your sister, we talked about it. Daddy and I talked about it. I said, I don't want to give them American names. I want them to have names that they'll be able to have in Israel. One Hebrew name. I didn't want you to have an American name and, an, and a Hebrew name. I wanted you to have one name because you would come to Israel and have one name. So from the time you were born, my thought was, that if you go to Israel, you will be Tamar. Yeah. And then Joe ended up as Joe. <laughs> well, that had to do with grandma. <laughs> but I figured Joe is Yosef is Joe. <laughs> he still just goes by Joe. But anyway. Yeah. So one of the questions that I got actually in the past few weeks it was directed at me not at you but i'm curious to hear your take on this um somebody asked me why do you feel safer in israel than in america they're like october 7th happened in israel so wouldn't we be more scared to live in israel look the society in israel that we live in i think living among jews i feel very safe is it safe here? We have a war going on. We have enemies. For sure not. But I feel safe among my people. And in America, I think there's so much random violence that that makes me feel very uncomfortable and unsafe. Right. And um, so I think it's just a different kind of safety. Um totally hear you yeah there's so much random violence in america i feel um, like there's so many angry people in america i don't know why yeah. they're so ang maybe they're angry because they don't get their anger out like i'm just thinking about it right now you know israel is known for their you know pushy aggressive society whatever but well, maybe. we all kind of like get our like anger out of our frustration out and then we like move on and i feel like <laughs> it's kind of no but i'm just thinking about it like i think I mean, this is my own take. I think that America has become very secularized and it's a very comfortable, cushy society. And I think that a lot of the young people in America grow up without feeling any sense of purpose. And like, that's why I think you see all these people fighting for poor Palestinians. They're looking for a purpose in their lives, something to be passionate about, something to, to care about. 
And, um, and there's also, you know, like a lot of depression in America. There's a lot of drugs in America. There's all this stuff. And I think that in Israel, the society is so idealistic and rooted in, in whether it's religious or non-religious, it's like there's a society that cares about each other, that is, um, has certain goals. I think that we also have, you know, one of the things I, uh, a few years back, me and Adina went to the beach together and we were sitting on the beach and we saw this woman that was like super secular. I think that she probably had tattoos. She was in the bikini, but she was like nine months pregnant. And we were just like looking at her and Adina and I were amazed. We're like, even the most secular people in Israel have strong family values right so even if it's oh, <laughs> i didn't know where you were no going. even if it's not <laughs> because a lot of people in the states i feel like are not necessarily you know there's a lot of people that are childless by choice and whatever and not really interested in, in having children or maybe they'll have one or maybe two but i feel like in israel like even the most secular have big families and it's a society that that is very um, focused on family, and uh, I I think that is very important. And I think in America, you know, a lot of families are split. Are you know, uh, it, it there's really a lot lacking in the fabric well, of this society that I think has caused a lot of issues for young people. It's very sad. One of the things that I give you and Ilya a lot of credit for is that each one of your six kids is religious. And I don't think that that's a common thing. I think that a lot of people these days, a lot of families don't have all six kids, especially with what we've gone through. You know, it it would be very easy for some of us to be like, screw it. I don't want to be religious. You know, like what? Like whatever there's a lot of reasons that we wouldn't want to be religious but the fact that you were able to get us through those crazy times and bring us to where we are today where we are all religious where we are all part of society where we are all you know contributing members of society um is really a testament to you and Ilya um and I think that the question that you know I think a lot of parents I know want to hear from you. Like, how did you do it? How did you get six kids from such tragedy um, to, you know, you merge these kids after losing their parents so young, you merge them. And now, thank God, like, we're living, you know, people, I meaning if we didn't tell people, people wouldn't realize how much happened in our lives. Um, so how did you manage to do that? I don't know. I think it's a lot of luck. <laughs> but no, I think, um, you know, one of the things I learned when I was working in camp, um, when you work in Rama, one of the things that they instill with the counselors is you always have to set a dogma. It's all about modeling behavior. This is, you know, very strong educational principle, modeling behavior. So whether you believe something or not, if you want your children to learn something, you have to 
do by example. And um, I think so. I I never like forced anything on you guys, but I always felt that. I, and I think Ilya, both of us like led by example. And you know, I think we had our own convictions. And sometimes maybe my own convictions. Maybe I questioned myself, but I always wanted you to have that that model. Um, a lot of it was, you know, I mean, after daddy died, I mean, I really thought maybe, maybe I don't want to be religious or maybe I, you know, I, I mean, I was so angry with God, but I felt that I knew that daddy and I always wanted to raise strong Jewish, I, Jewishly identified kids. And I knew that I had to model that behavior, whether I felt it inside or not, but that that is what you needed. And if you decided later on that you didn't want to be religious, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't love you any less. But for me, it was very important that you saw that dogma. Well, I also think it's interesting because, you know, we definitely saw that growing up, but honestly, I feel like now you're even more of a role model in terms of being religious. Like you inspire me to be like, what's wrong with you? Like your mom Davins all the time. Like you're saying, I don't know, you say to hell in these <laughs> days. Like, and it's crazy. Like I never thought that you learned with a Hubbard. I never thought that you'd be so strong religiously. Meaning I knew that you were always strong religiously and committed, but like what changed now that you feel like, you're just so much stronger religiously and that you're doing so much more in terms of like, you have a very strong relationship with Hashem right now. Um, I think part of it is being in Israel. Part of it is, I think as you, as you grow and get older, you appreciate the craziness of life and you see more how God's hand is in things and maybe accept that, you know, uh, when you're younger, it's, it, I think it's harder to accept that, you know, when people would say things like, oh, this is God's plan. I'm like, I, I couldn't accept that it was God's plan that daddy died. And I, I still don't really understand or have a hard time accepting something like that because to me, that's just, but I do see how things evolved in a way that, you know, God was able to, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it was God, but somehow my life came together and I have many blessings and I can appreciate them. And I have to thank Hashem for at least providing me with the strength and the support and the people around me and for what I do have. And right. I have. I mean, one of the things that I've always been jealous of you for is that you really have, like, the strongest network. Um, like, I never, you know, growing up, I took it very much for granted that you had your two best friends for 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and now, like, looking at it, I'm like, how the heck did that happen? Like, you are still best friends. And it's not like, oh, you know, you're best friends with people that your parents whatever like your parents 
friends, kids. It was, you know, it wasn't like that. It was you met these people in your life and you just always remained strong with these friends to the point that, like, they're basically like aunts and uncles and a massive part of our family. Uh, They come to the Eric Smachot, even in Israel, and it's uh, really remarkable. I feel very lucky, privileged. But also, you know, my friends were really there for me when when daddy died and they were they made me a birthday party. I mean, I think that's that's the part that you know, you you can appreciate that um uh you know, on Yom Kippur we say uh when we say Unatanatokef and we say that um Tfila Sadaka and whatever. What is that? Tfila Tzedakah. And Tshuva will get us, will, will get us through this harsh decree of death. Right? People, at first, it's very hard to say that because you, you say, but, but I prayed and, and he, he died anyway. But it's not that. It's that Tzedakah, Tshuva, all of these things are what help you get through the trauma, help you to move on. It's that network, it's that family, it's that community, it's the tzedakah, it's the um, the love. And um, all of that is a way to help you through. And sometimes it takes a long time. It's not like, you know, when you suffer a trauma, it's it's not like you know you're not going to bounce back right away, but if you follow, if you're if you have that support network and you continue in that, you know you it it can bring you through it, through that pain. I think, and and my friends were there for me. My support network was there for me, and I'm forever grateful for it. Yeah, no, it's incredible. So. Um, we're going to wrap up, but I want to just ask you a few questions before we wrap up. The first question is, you know, raising six kids, three biologically and three stepkids, um, and going through everything, what is one or two parenting lessons that you learned besides for being a role model? But what is like specific lessons that you learned of ways to like handle your, your children? Well, I think that every child is an individual. So I don't know if I could give a specific answer to that. I think you have to understand each child and deal with them as an individual. Some kids need more of something and some kids don't. Some kids need more structure. Some kids need more guidance. Some kids need more rules. Some kids need more freedom and more independence. And you have to be able to understand their needs. For example, when we first moved into West Orange, you know, your oldest sister, Leah, was starting her senior year in high school and was so unhappy to be in West Orange. And I think every Shabbat, she went back to East Brunswick or went someplace. She was not around a lot that first year. Uh, She was not happy to be in the house. And we let her do that. She needed to do that. 
we weren't going to say, no, no, you have to stay in the house. You can't go. You have to be part of this because she needed that freedom. On the other hand, there were times where, you know, you needed more structure. You needed to be pulled in a little bit. It's like every kid needs different things. And I think that as a parent, you have to be aware of that. I think one of the biggest mistakes that a parent can make is to try to treat all your kids equally and say, okay, every kid gets the same this, whatever it is, but every kid is not the same. And so some kids need more and some kids need less. And you have to, and you, and you, and you also have to let all the kids understand that you're not treating anybody specially. Nobody's getting priority because they're favored, but it's what they need. And I, you know, I think the other thing is we really, from the beginning, you know, we, we sought help from a family therapist and we brought everybody at certain points to the therapist and some kids needed it more. Some kids needed it less. Some kids were more receptive to it. Some kids were less, but we knew that that was a resource that we needed to, to take advantage of because we knew we couldn't do it ourselves. And it helped us as parents also to know how to navigate. You can't, you know, you're in a situation that you've never been in before. And, you know, I, I'm not, I, I didn't have those skills necessarily. And so, you know, I needed that guidance. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So the other thing that I want to ask you is, is there any other, you know, lessons that you've learned or is there any other points that you want to mention um, before we wrap up? Oh, boy, that's very open-ended. But, um, you know, my friends have always, you know, said to me, oh, you're such a positive person. You always put a positive spin on everything. And, um, you know, I think that really you know, when you're facing the hardest things in life, you just have to always look for the good and always appreciate the good because there's always somebody who's suffering more, someone whose situation is more difficult and you have to appreciate what you have. And um, I always had the support that I needed. I was lucky to have people in my life who were there for me and I always appreciated it instead of being angry. I mean, look, there are people that say stupid things and maybe not be helpful and you could get angry and bitter, but that's not productive. Do you remember any specific comments that anybody made to you that you were like, Oh man, I can't believe Oh, that I, I do, but me. I don't think I want to share them. I think people say things that they don't they don't really understand or realize that it's hurtful. And maybe they think they're being helpful, but and I think sometimes, you know, you can be caught off guard and be like, I can't believe that person just said that. But then when you think about it, you think, well, maybe that person is just not in the right place to really know how to say the right thing. And, uh, you know, try to give them that benefit of the doubt. And then there are people that are just not nice and, you know, you just disassociate and just say, 
sure. But um, For you know, sure. I think I don't. I don't think. I think a lot of people just don't know what to say and don't know how. And uh, you know, sometimes I mean, Ilya and I have the same experience now, which I think is very interesting. Is like sometimes we'll meet somebody or or tell somebody you know that our our spouse passed away. And their immediate reaction was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Like, and it's like it's been many years for us. And, you know, we find ourselves being the ones saying, it's OK. <laughs> you know, we're like, it's OK. We're like we're trying to make them feel better um, yeah, because sure. we have that that time and space, um, you know, I. I, I would like to say one thing, you know, there's so much pain in this country now. There's so much trauma and it's, you can't really tell somebody, oh, it's going to be okay. Nobody wants to hear that. Oh, it's going to be okay. Or you're going to get through it or whatever it is, God's plan. Because when you're in it, you don't want to hear that. You just want to be in your pain and that's okay. Um, and you'll always have that pain. That pain is always a part of you, but it changes as you go through life. And, um, you know, when, when early on, when daddy died, I was so fearful for my kids and so worried and so nervous about how everybody would survive. And now we've survived and my pain has kind of, transitioned and now you know we have a simcha and our whole family is together and my my thoughts are really just sadness that daddy can't be here with us that i feel that he missed out i feel sad for him i don't feel sad for us anymore because we have moved on with our lives and made a beautiful life for ourselves and i I just feel sad that he's not a part of it because he would have loved to see it or be part of it. And, you know, we've always included daddy and Stephanie yeah. in our lives in a very strong way. And I think that that For is sure. very important. Well, I always say that I feel like I was raised by like four parents and not right. just two. Like I, I do feel even like from Stephanie, meaning even though I never met her, like she still made an impact in my life. Sure. And I think that's, because you and Ilya spoke about both of them so much. Well, we, from the very beginning, always said that we didn't want to forget them. We didn't want you, our children, to forget them. And that we wanted them to be part of our lives. And so I think that was very important in raising you guys, is not to have anybody feel that, that we, we were replacing a parent or forgetting a parent because we will never forget them, but we've created a family and included them. For sure, for sure. I'm still, I'm curious, how often do you think about daddy still? Like, you know, we've moved on, but do you still think about him every day or are there days that you're like, that you just feel like? Well, you know, like I, people say, oh, I think about him. I think about my father every day. I think about the person who died every day of my life. Um. I guess I could say that, but I don't know if that's so true. I think that there are a lot of things that trigger memories and bring a smile to my face or maybe 
uh, uh, something sad, you know. Um, yeah. You know, there are often times where I'll have a memory and I'll feel like I wish I could share this with Jeff because nobody else in the world will remember this except for him. Or sometimes just I would love for him to see what his grandchildren are, are like and that, you know, he's missing out on that. So, you know, there's all kinds of triggers that trigger a little smile or a little sadness, but it's it can be fleeting. Hagai looks a lot like, you know, the burgers and yeah. like daddy. Yeah. So that's really interesting. And I'm seeing it more and more as he gets older. Yeah. Um, so that's really interesting. Yeah. So the last question is, is there or has there been a pasuk or a quote that you feel like has really like given you strength through it all? Well, like I said, I was talking about that Uda Tanatoka, which was very difficult for me at the beginning, like my first Yom Kippur, first few times, and until somebody pointed that out to me. And I, I just thought that was just so beautiful that it's it's not... Do you remember who pointed it out? No. It was, a, I think, I don't remember. Maybe it was in a shear or something. And it was like, it's not necessarily that if you do these things, you know, you're going to avoid bad things from happening. But if you do these things, they will help you get through the bad. And I think that's the important thing. Sadaka, Chuva, Milud Chasadim, all of these things help you to get through the tough times. That's all. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Anyways, Mom, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you sharing your story. I know that many people will appreciate you sharing your story. Um, it's something I've been wanting to do for years. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Anything But Traditional. I really can't even tell you how happy I was that my mom came on and shared her story with us. Getting my mom on was not the easiest as she's not as open as I am. She's a bit more private, a bit more closed, but she also saw the importance. One of the main reasons why I wanted to have her on this week was because this week was my dad's yard site. It has been 23 years since his passing. To commemorate his yard site, I wanted my mom to tell the story of what we endured, of what we went through. It's one thing to hear it for me, but I was only eight years old. So it's another thing to hear it for my mom. Thank you, mom, for coming on. Thank you for telling our story. So I hope that you learned something. I hope you took something away from it. If you have any other questions for me or maybe my mom, uh, feel free to head over to Tales of Tomorrow on Instagram. Put them in the question box. Ask them anonymously. I'll try to get my mom to answer a few more. But um, yeah, I'll see what I can do. But let's talk it out. So go on over to Tales of Tomorrow on Instagram and... Let's have a conversation. As always, there's sponsorship opportunities, dedications, ads. So please make sure to reach out to me if you're interested in any of these opportunities. 
There's a lot there. There's a lot that we can do together. Please feel free to be in touch, and I look forward to hearing from you. All the best. Until next time.